You're tuned to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. The following program is a rebroadcast of Miracle Hunter with Michael O'Neill. Welcome to the Miracle Hunter, where it doesn't matter if you are a believer or a skeptic, it's always worth the hunt. My name is Michael O'Neill. I'm the Miracle Hunter and creator of the website MiracleHunter.com. I'll be your host for the next hour as we continue our weekly exploration of the world of miracles. Today's program should be a great one. We are talking today about one of my favorite saints, the great mystic St. Birgitta, also known as Bridget, of Sweden. She lived in the years 1303 to 1373, and she was a laywoman, a mother of eight, four boys, four girls, and she founded a religious order after her husband died. That order was called the Bridgetines, and they are now known for their hospitality ministry, and they've got a house here in the United States as well. And if you go to Rome, you'll see, uh, you can notice them. They're wearing that distinctive headdress with the five red stones uh, around, and those symbolize the wounds of Christ. Uh, She was a great mystic, and her revelations that she received were so powerful that the church had to reconsider how it reassessed visions at the Council of Constance and Basil. On today's program, we'll be joined by Dennis Serby. He's a professor at Stockholm University and the chairman of Classics, and he is the translator of several volumes of The Revelations of St. Birgitta of Sweden. He'll be joining us today all the way from Sweden. And of course, in just a bit, we'll be asking you a Catholic trivia question, so get your pens and paper ready. Later in the show, we'll be talking about how Our Lady is honored around the world today in our segment, 365 Days with Mary. More information on this project can be found at 365dayswithmary.com or on Facebook, 365 Days with Mary. This week in Miracle News, uh, there was an interesting article on the website, The Blaze. It started that story yesterday. And I don't really think this is truly a miracle, but it's still interesting nonetheless. So the, tit- the headline of the article was, The American Airlines Publishes Photo of Mysterious Mid-Air Phenomena That Still ba- Baffles Many. And they have a video and a photo of it online as well. So American Airlines tweeted out a photo on Thursday of a mysterious phenomena that continues to spark debate and baffles some as to the exact cause. Now, if you look at the photo on the website, you'll see it looks like a glowing object or a halo uh, in the sky. Uh, the picture is what is what is called a pilot's halo or simply glory. It's when a rainbow-like image seemingly engulfs the shadow of the plane. Now, it's, while it's generally accepted that glories are formed by water droplets in the air, there's still plenty of debate about the finer details. One very dense mathematical website sums it up saying, quote, it is perplexing that the glory cannot be explained even by eminent scientists except by resorting to mathematical formulas that offer little insight into the mechanisms that actually cause the glory. So again, this isn't truly a miracle, but it's quite a beautiful and interesting image. So if you go on the blaze, you can, you can see that. And that's the miracle news for this week. To keep up to date with the latest in miracle news, Please visit MiracleHunter.com and sign up for our newsletter. You'll receive a monthly email with the latest Miracle Hunter news, including reports on the latest miracles and news stories, links to past radio episode podcasts, updates on my television series, Miracle Hunters, now in development, and my book, Exploring the Miraculous, due out in fall 2014, any upcoming speaking engagements, and much, much more. So sign up for the newsletter on MiracleHunter.com by clicking the newsletter link the bottom of the page. Now it's time for Catholic Pub Trivia. 
Each week, I'll be asking a trivia question and giving out a prize for a caller that gets the right answer. This week, we'll be giving away a framed image of a piece of artwork entitled The Faces of Mary. And this is the same image that we've given, been giving out in past weeks. It's a photo mosaic of over 100 images of Our Lady from around the world that forms a large, beautiful picture of the Madonna and Child. Trivia questions are generously provided by Catholic Pub Trivia, an organization that partners with Catholic parishes, schools, or religious organizations to host trivia night fundraisers at local establishments. And for more information on Catholic Pub Trivia or to organize an event in your area, please visit catholicpubtrivia.com. Now, we always try to keep the questions related to the theme of the day's program, and today we are talking about St. Bridget of Sweden. So here's the question. St. Bridget joins Benedict of Nursia, St. Cyril and Methodius, Catherine of Siena, and Edith Stein as the patron saints of Europe. And for more information on Catholic Pub Trivia or to organize an event in your area, please visit catholicpubtrivia.com. Now it's time for our question of the week. We'll be reaching into our email or mailbag, as it were, to find a question for this week. There's a question from writer Dan. He asks, Dear Miracle Hunter, I heard that the revelations given to Blessed Anne Catherine Emmerich may not be approved. Is this true? If so, how can that be? Isn't she beatified? Thanks, Dan. Well, thank you, Dan, for your excellent question. And you have, in fact, hit on an interesting point. Uh, Some of you out there might remember the revelations of Anne Catherine Emmerich used by Mel Gibson in the film The Passion in order to fill in some of the finer details of that film uh, and they're considered revelations of the life and passion of Jesus Christ. So a little background on Anne Catherine Emmerich. She lived from the year 1774 to 1824 and she was a Roman Catholic Augustinian canonist regular of Wildesheim, Germany. And she's considered a mystic, a Marian visionary, an ecstatic, and she actually bore the wounds of Christ herself. She received a series of visions and locutions that were recorded in the volumes of The Dolorous Passion of Our Lord Jesus Christ. And Emmerich was beatified on October 3rd, 2004, by Pope John Paul II. Now remember, when the church canonizes or beatifies someone, it is not necessarily giving its stamp of approval to the private revelations and miracles attributed to that person. That's an important point to remember. There are a number of saints throughout history, famous saints, Padre Pio, for example, who who claimed visions. The church never investigated those visions on the way to his canonization. Anne Catherine uh, was a very ill and frail woman, and for many years she was in fact bedridden. One of the few people who were allowed to go in and see her on a regular basis was poet Clemens Bretano, with whom she shared her visions about the life and passion of Jesus Christ. Given that Emmerich only spoke the Westphalian dialect, Bretano could not transcribe her words directly, and he often could not even take notes in her presence. But what he would do is he would quickly write a set of notes based on what he remembered of the conversations he had with Emmerich in standard German when he returned to his own apartment. Bretano edited these notes years later, years after the death of Emmerich. So there were two books based on his notes of her visions, but the authenticity of Bretano's writings has been questioned, and critics have characterized the books as, quote, conscious elaborations by a poet and well-intentioned fraud by Bretano. 
They questioned if he embellished the writings with his own poetic skills and threw in information using uh, books and maps that he had in his library. The Holy House of Ephesus, the legendary House of Mary, we did a show on that uh, some months ago. It was discovered by Sister Marie Mandat de Grancy, who actually used the writings of Emmerich as a roadmap to provide uh, the clues as to find the house. Apparently, neither Emmerich nor Bretano had ever been to Ephesus. And for her beatification, the Vatican focused on her own personal life of piety rather than the religious writings that have been associated to her by Clemens Bertano. So thank you, Dan, for your excellent question. It's pretty confusing, but I think in summary the answer is we don't know how authentic those writings are, are truly, and the Church has never spoken definitively about them. Now, if you have a question for the Miracle Hunter, please visit MiracleHunter.com or email questions at MiracleHunter.com, and we'll be selecting one question to be read per week on the air. For those just joining the program, this is Michael O'Neill, and you are listening to the Miracle Hunter radio show. And for more information on this program or my research on miracles, please visit MiracleHunter.com. Each week, we do a segment entitled 365 Days with Mary. For each and every day of the year, somewhere in the world, there's a Marian title feast or commemoration of an apparition or other miraculous event being celebrated. It never ceases to amaze me how much the world loves the Mother of God and honors her throughout each day of the year. This project collects all the dates with their feasts into one resource, 365 Days with Mary. Each entry features images, a description and history of the feast day, along with information on the shrines associated with them, including visitor information and links for people wishing to see those places. The project is available in print in the form of a daily engagement calendar, daily planner, as well as online at 365dayswithmary.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter, where if you like us and follow us, you can automatically receive information about each feast day and learn more about how our Blessed Mother is honored around the world. So be sure to like 365 Days with Mary on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and go to the website 365dayswithmary.com to see the project. The print version in the form of a daily organizer makes a great gift for anyone with a devotion to Our Lady. Now today's, er, today's feast is... Santa Maria de la Querche, it's Holy Mary of the Oak, from Lusignano Arezzo in Tuscany, Italy. In f- the story goes like this. In 1417, Feliciano Batone, he painted a fresco of the Pietà on a wayside shrine beneath a great oak tree. Fifty years later, there's a story that follows a surge of devotion to the Madonna of the Oak after the story circulated that on August 8, 1467, a man from Siena, running away from his enemies, stopped there to pray to the Virgin Mary, who made him invisible to his pursuers. A small wooden chapel was built to protect that image and was consecrated later that year. It's located on a hill northeast of the old city center, beyond the Medici Fortress and the cemetery. The present church was designed by Giorgio Vasari in 1558, and consecrated in 1611. On the third Sunday of September, near the Feast of the Sorrowful Mother, on September 15th, Lucignano celebrates St. Mary of the Oak with religious services, food, games, and fireworks. So that was today's feast, Santa Maria de la Querche, Holy Mary of the Oak, from Lucignano, Italy. So be sure to visit the project 365 Days with Mary on Facebook 
and online at 365dayswithmary.com to find out more about this devotion or any of the hundreds of other Marian devotions celebrated around the world. And this is Michael O'Neill. You're listening to the Miracle Hunter radio show. For more information on this program or my research on miracles, please visit miraclehunter.com. Today, I'm very excited about the program. We are talking about uh, St. Bridget of Sweden, one of the great saints, great mystics in the history of our church. And we are joined today by Dennis Serby. He's the professor at Stockholm University, the chairman of classics, and he is the translator of the book, The Revelations of St. Birgitta of Sweden. And he is joining us today all the way from Sweden. So welcome to the show today, Dennis. Oh, thank you very much, Michael. It's a pleasure to be here, here in Sweden, I guess, talking yes. to you in Chicago. Yeah, right. I, I appreciate uh, you you calling all the way in, and this is great. And on today's program, we're talking about uh, St. Birgitta of Sweden, and uh, that's something, someone that you know very well through all your work through translation. Um, can you tell us a little bit about, uh, tell, first tell us about what you do um, at the university there, and, and tell us how you got involved in this translation project. Well, uh, briefly, I, I've already said what I do at the university. I'm in classics uh, at the University of Stockholm. I used to be in the University of Uppsala, uh, which is uh, the medieval University of Sweden. And uh, there is a, a tomb in Uppsala Cathedral with the, uh, the family of St. Uh, Birgitta, actually. So I've uh, always felt rather close to St. Bridget. I want to make this point. Uh, I'm calling her Birgitta because that's what we say in, in Sweden. Sure. But mostly uh, in English, she's been known as St. Bridget of Sweden. When we were translating this at the beginning, I just want to point this out. We discussed, should we uh, translate her name to as Bridget or leave it as Birgitta? And we decided to leave it as Birgitta of Sweden, which is a Swedish version. Just so uh, everyone understands that this is St. Birgitta of Sweden is the same as St. Bridget of Sweden. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Now, I uh, I got involved in this well, quite some time ago, in in the year 2000, when we were celebrating a jubilee of St. Bridget, year 2002, it's approaching our 600th anniversary, you know, uh, and, uh, or 700th, right? <laughs> 700th anniversary. She was born in 1302. Yes. So 2002 was her 700th anniversary. And uh, we were mulling the idea of doing an English translation. And uh, I always say that if you... Uh, I'm an English, I'm a native English speaker, and uh, I know Latin, and I always say that if you happen to uh, know Latin here in Sweden, you'll wind up doing something on St. Bridget, oh. and I did, and uh, it was, I was a natural fit to the, uh, to the project to, uh, to translate, and besides, I'm a practicing Catholic and all that, so uh, that was a, an added plus Wonderful. for the translation project. This was, brought, this was initiated by a friend of mine who was a professor of theology at the University of Lund. Uh, Stefan Borihammer, and he's a real expert on medieval spirituality and on St. Bridget. That's a, a great origin to the project, and it, it sounds like you, you have a, uh, a strong devotion to St. Bridget, and she's someone that, in you know, she may not be as well-known in the United States. Uh, she's uh, one of the great saints of our church, uh, but she's not as well-known. Can you give us a little background in the history and the life of St. Bridget to get people up to speed on what makes her so special? Well, I certainly can. Uh, St. Bridget, or Birgitta, St. B, we can call her even. <laughs> sure. I like, I like to call her St. B, <laughs> uh, for short. Uh, 
She um, she's one of the great visionaries of the 14th century uh, in in the church, and she uh, was a contemporary, an older contemporary of Saint Catherine of Siena. To just to place her more or less in time and space for people, Saint Catherine of Siena is better known. Uh, Bridget or Begita was a noble woman, very highly uh, high born noble woman. She. Uh, uh, she was re related to the uh, the king's family, and uh, she was the daughter of uh, a uh, an important uh, well, what would we call it in English? I don't remember. A judge, I guess, of the the district in up upland, mm. and she uh, she got married when she was fourteen years old. Although she had already begun uh, having mystical experiences as a child, I should point out, and uh, she wanted to become a nun. Uh, <laughs> But she uh, she was married off to a man uh, named uh, Ulf Gunnarsson, and he um, he was 18 years old at the time, and uh, they uh, had eight children. Okay. And uh, she was also involved. She was one of the ladies uh, at court. She was uh, involved in uh, in the life of the uh, royal court, and then. She and her husband undertook a series of uh, of pilgrimages. Both of them were very pious, and she especially was the uh, the, the motor the, the the motor of the family. In, sure, uh, sure. Built like a lot of mothers, you know. She yes. brought. She was already as a uh, a mother. She was exemplary. Uh, they. She even got her husband uh, during the final years of her, uh, of their marriage. Uh, to uh, to um, live abstinence for a while uh, after uh, I guess uh, all the eight children had already been born a long time sure. ago. Then they undertook a number of pilgrimages, as I was saying. Uh, one was to the uh, Church of Saint Olaf in Norway, and then they went all the way uh, to Santiago de Compostela, in Spain. Uh, famous Camino uh, uh, de Santiago in Spain. And on the way back. Uh, uh, her husband, Ulf, uh, began uh, to get ill, and mm. he died in Sweden not long afterwards. And uh, he uh, uh, was buried, and uh, she was then a widow, and uh, she uh, donated basically all her... Well, she made sure her children were uh, well off, but she donated all of her personal property to the poor and to the church, and then she took her life in a completely different direction, correct? She went from uh, married, and then she, what did she do next? What did she do next? Well, you have to understand that all this time she's, she's, begun, she's been having these very intense religious uh, experiences. Uh, she's, uh, she's been receiving visions of different kinds, and we can get into that a little bit later. Sure. Uh, but she received visions over a period of 30 years from... Uh, as, as I said, she had some earlier. Uh, she had some mystical experiences, but it was the m major time of her mystical experiences were from the mid 1340s until her death in 1373. So it's a period of 30 years, and uh, she um, was all part of these visions were in, in an inspiration, a revelation to found a uh, an order of. Um, well, a religious order. I was going to say an order of nuns, but actually it was not just for nuns, but it was primarily an order of, uh, of female religious. She, and eventually she did found uh, the order of the, Saint, of the Brigitines, 
who are still in existence. I yes. often say that uh, St. Bridget is, uh, is the most important person in, in Swedish history. And mm. I'll say, I say this often to my Swedish uh, non-Catholic friends, and they, they look at me kind of oddly. Okay. But it's really true. When you think about it, uh, here is a woman who founded an institution 700 years ago, and it's still in existence. It's, it's a global organization, and it's been revived. We'll get into that a little bit later. Okay. Uh, but she also made it her mission, and it was, uh, again, something that she experienced as a calling from God to move to Rome. Why did she do that? She spent the last 24 years of her life in Rome. She did that because the Pope was at the time not in Rome, as you uh, recall from church history. This is the time of the Babylonian captivity, as they call sure. it, right? Yes. So the Pope was uh, the popes at the, of the time were in Avignon in France, right. and she uh, she made it her uh, her mission to get the Pope to return to Rome. Uh, she had limited success with that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she did get Urban V to return, <laughs> or he did return, he, and he turned around and went back to Avignon. And then, then he died, as Brigitte predicted he would, within a year, mm. um, because uh, Rome was not a very pleasant place at the time. Uh, the, the, Pope, the papal court was at Avignon, and Rome had sort of uh, fallen apart. It was in, uh, it was in um, a bad uh, condition, basically. But she went to this... Uh, a falling apart city, and uh, she stayed there for 24 years. Uh, and it was, uh, and she also went to Jerusalem. It's a famous pilgrimage she made, all the way, uh, stopping off in, uh, in Naples and then Cyprus, and then uh, going on to Jerusalem. That's where she had her famous uh, uh, re revelations, her famous visions of the birth of Christ. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, so the Brigitines uh, were founded uh, during her lifetime. And the main abbey church and abbey, the monastery uh, and convent, was in a place called Vadstena in Sweden. Vadstena became, uh, it's, a, it's a city in um, southern central Sweden, you could say. Very lovely city. In case any of your American listeners visit Sweden, I highly recommend going to visit Vadstena. It's a very picturesque town. Okay. And uh, the, uh, the, the convent she founded, or the, mon the abbey, was a double monastery. I don't know if you're familiar with the term. Double. Oh, is monastery. that the for for both men and women? Then is that the what that would imply? The, yes, there were uh, not. They were not very common, but they did exist uh, at the time, and, and uh, they were so arranged that the uh, the the men and women didn't meet each other generally. Sure. Even if the men were uh, uh, far fewer, they were basically serving the women. <laughs> as priests and uh, spiritual advisors, but they were kept separate. There's 24 men and, uh, I think, 60 uh, nuns. It was a strictly regulated number of, uh, of Oh, that was, the ra that was the ratio that, that always existed, or the I'm number of nuns to, was, yep. I should, uh, uh, I, I should look that up, exactly. Uh, she figured it was the number of the, it was the 72 uh, disciples and the 12 apostles, so that's 84, right? She oh, had a, sure. a certain number. Uh, I, I don't remember the exact number. I think it was 60 nuns. But there was some sort of mystical math that she used to come up with absolutely, that. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I should have uh, looked all this up before the interview, but I, it slipped my mind at the moment. Um, now, uh, anyway, the, uh, the order was founded, the Brigitines, and she died in Rome 
uh, at uh, the Casa di Santa Brigida, which still exists in Rome. It's a wonderful place to stay. Uh, one of these, you know, uh, hostels run by nuns, you know, in, in that are so common in Rome. Sure. And it's, uh, you can actually see the place where she died. Uh, she was uh, put on a table. She died on a table. She, she requested to uh, be put on a hard, she did not she'd not die in bed. She died on a hard board table. Okay. Uh, uh, and she, uh, she knew when she was going to die because she received a vision a few days ahead of time. So she knew the date of her death. Wow. And uh, she uh, received uh, communion, et cetera, and had a vision of Christ at the end of her life. Um, the Casa de Saint, Saint, the House of Saint Bridget, still exists. I said, and it, it was somewhat important. It's in uh, the history of the order. It was very important in the history of the order afterwards. Um, however, Saint Bridget died, as I said, in 1373, and she was uh, she, she was um, beatified quite soon afterwards. Uh, I, not beatified, canonized. It's one of the first. Around this time, the church had changed the uh, um, had changed the rules for canonization, right? Yes. Uh, and so Brigitte was actually one of the first who went through the more modern kind of canonization process with the uh, uh, the what do we call it in English? The devil's advocate and everything. Yes, yes. Uh, and she was canonized in 1391, which is what was it, 17 years or so after she had died. That's very uh, quick. Yeah, I, I want to point out that she was canonized not because of her visions, not because of all these revelations and prophecies, but because of her, her virtuous life, her piety, and uh, she's a, this holy widow. Uh, so that was the, uh, as a matter of fact, there's nothing in the bull of canonization to uh, endorse her revelations. Uh, yeah. And the church is very careful to do that with canonizations. There are many saints who have claimed visions, but the church typically, unless they do a formal investigation of the visions, they, they sort of leave them alone in the canonization process and focus on their right. life of virtue. So that makes right. sense. Yeah. Uh, so that was a very brief background. Well, maybe not so brief for you, but it was, uh, that's the life of St. Bridget. No, that uh, was perfect. And uh, now the uh, Bridgetine Order, I know they have a home in the United States and they're dedicated to hospitality here. And uh, the order still exists uh, throughout the world, I know. Um, and when I've been to Rome on a few occasions, I've seen them walking around the streets with their with their habit. It's very distinctive. Can you describe that a little very, bit, the habit that they wear? Uh, it's very distinctive. It's uh, They look like they're wearing a, a helmet, basically. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so you, you notice it immediately. Um it's uh, uh, that's the uh, the top of the the um, uh, the veil uh, is is like a crown. It's meant to be uh, a reminder of the crown of thorns. Uh, the one of the distinguishing marks of the Brigitines is that they are um, devoted to the Passion of Christ and the Cross of Christ, and so their habit also reminds uh, them of the Cross of Christ and. Uh, Actually, I just finished um, translating the rule of the uh, 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 of the Bridgetine Order, mm. and uh, there uh, there it's explained uh, what all the the clothing symbolizes and how it should all be done. Uh, and there's a uh, uh, on the top the most distinguishing thing is this, this white cloth crown that's placed on the top of the veil, you know, and on it is, is sewn five strips of red cloth. Uh, 
and uh, they uh, they form both a cross, but they they remind you of the crown of thorns. So this is it's a sign of um, uh, of um, uh, both chastity, of course, and uh, that they're committed to, and their uh, devotion to the Passion of Christ. Sure. Yeah. Uh, now the Brigitines, um they still exist absolutely, uh, although Sweden. Uh, during the Reformation, which took place not long, uh, not so long after uh, uh, the British Islands were founded, just hundred and what was it, uh, hundred and fifty years, right? Yes. Um, the the uh, women's branch in Sweden lasted for quite some time, actually. Uh, even after they went over to the Lutheran Lutheranism, the king didn't really dare. He, he might have. Uh, uh, broken up all the other monasteries in the country. He didn't quite dare to expel the nuns at Vatstein until mm. uh, some, some decades later. And then they totally disappeared from Sweden. They were in several other countries, including England. I want to point this out, that uh, there was a foundation early on, already in the year 1400, and uh, 1405 it was founded. That's 600 years ago next year. They're celebrating their 600th anniversary, Sion Abbey. That is the only, uh, it was the only um, medieval order with a continuous history into modern times in England, wow. the Brigitines. And unfortunately, uh, at the, they were going to celebrate their 600th anniversary next year and also their dissolution. Oh. Because the, the remaining nuns, who have all been English, by the way, even if they, during the Reformation, were also driven outside the country, and while uh, they were in different countries, but mostly in Portugal for a number of centuries, but there were English women, were nuns there, Catholic nuns. Sion uh, Abbey returned them to England. Uh, it's, uh, King Henry VIII gave it to the Duke of Northumberland, and it is his, it is his residence today. Uh, so it's uh, the old old abbey was torn down. It's the largest abbey church in England, in all of England. It's, it's, the Bridgetown Church is the largest. And unfortunately, the nuns are so old that uh, they, uh, they're going to end the order or end their particular convent next year. On their yeah, that's, that's been quite a run, 600 years. That's, uh, that's very impressive. That's unfortunate for them, but the, uh, we have Bridgetown vocations in many parts of the, uh, of the world, uh, not, not least in India, by the way. <laughs> right. I, I, was read, I was reading a little bit about that. There, there are nuns from South America and India who, uh, who are members of the order in, in quite large numbers, actually. So, yes. Um, uh, but we also have Sweden. I want to just, I don't know if you've read about the return of the Bridgetines to, to Sweden. Um, it, uh, it took place uh, um, during the 20th century. Uh, the, a woman named Elizabeth uh, Hesselblad, I don't know if you've heard of her. No. Uh, Elizabeth Hesselblad was born in 1870. She was a Swedish woman. And at the end of the 1800s, in 18, uh, 1890 something, I don't remember, uh, 97, I think, uh, she. She moved to New York, or to the United States, I think it was New York, uh, where she um, was a uh, governess and a nurse in a large family. And uh, that's how she came in contact. She was a Lutheran, like all, all other Swedes at the time. That's how she came in contact with Catholics through this family. It's quite a moving story. She converted to Catholicism. Then she moved to Rome, where she became a, a, a nun. Uh, and she asked the Pope for permission to uh, to... Um, 
uh, entered the uh, she entered the Dominicans, I think, but she, she entered according to the Bridgetine order, <laughs> and then mm. she uh, uh, and then she received the permission. This was her mission in life that she perceived to bring the Bridgetines back to Sweden, and that's what she did. That uh, she Elizabeth Hesselblad is our modern Swedish saint. She was canonized in the year two thousand by Pope John Paul II. Oh wow! I, I did not know that. That's that's quite. I'm sorry. A, I'm, let me. Uh, she was beatified, not canonized. She was beatified okay. in 2000. So that, uh, that's quite that's quite an accomplishment to bring back the order there. So that uh, yeah, we, we now have two uh, two convents of uh, of British Chinese nuns here, and one one is back in the old place in Vatstena. So they they have returned in the 20th century, and they're in, also in Finland and Estonia. They're in Connecticut, by the way. And as a matter right. of fact. They said, uh, one thing you don't know, probably, is that there is a, a group of Bridgetine brothers. <laughs> uh, there's a, this is the first time we've had any men belong to the Bridgetine order uh, since the Middle Ages. And they are located in Oregon. Uh, okay. They sell very good chocolate, by the way. <laughs> so you can well, order it. Look them up on, on the on internet. Um, okay. And... Right. Uh, for those just joining the program, you're listening to the Miracle Hunter Radio Show. We're talking today with Dennis Serby, translator of the book, The Revelations of St. Birgitta of Sweden. Um, Dennis, thank you. Thank you for the history there of uh, the Brigitines. Um, can we talk a little bit about the visions, uh, the revelations accorded to St. Birgitta? Um, she's, she's one of the great mystics in the history of our church. And uh, what can you tell us about how these visions occurred, what were the circumstances, and what did she experience in these, in these revelations? Well, the, uh, she received hundreds and hundreds of visions, at least in the printed form, we have hundreds and hundreds of what we call revelations. It's a, it's a rather large uh, corpus of, of, of texts. From the, they're all written in Latin, by the way, but she, of course, uh, received them, so to speak, in Swedish, she understood them in Swedish, and she uh, she then would relate them to her uh, her confessors, and it's her confessors, uh, three priests, well, two priests basically, and later on a bishop uh, were all important for putting it into Latin. So Latin is the primary language, and that's why I was, by the way, brought in on this project because we don't have the original Swedish. Mm. Uh, we, uh, I, I correct myself. We do have one page, uh, a manuscript page, written. It's an, what we call an autograph manuscript. That is, it's written in her original handwriting. We do have that uh, in Swedish, uh, in Old Swedish, at the Royal Library in Stockholm. But uh, everything else is in Latin. And it was eventually translated, of course, into Swedish. So there's an Old Swedish translation from the Latin. <laughs> so it went back and forth, uh, Swedish, Latin, back to yeah, Swedish. Yeah, it is. It, my point is that is uh, there's a rather unusual textual history there because the original sure. language is uh, orally dictated in Swedish, <laughs> put yes. directly into Latin. Then it was translated after a couple of decades back into Swedish, uh, and and we still have that. And it was also translated into um, Middle English. I've actually had a look at the Middle English translation once in a while, uh, so um, it helped me out as I was translating the Revelations are not, uh, they're not revelations of the kind you might read in the, uh, the dialogue of the dialogues of Catherine of Siena. They're, uh, they're quite different, I would say. Um, there are a number of famous female mystics of the Middle Ages, as you know, right? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, and they all have distinctive styles. 
And St. Birgitta, she was a woman of the world, you could say. As I said before, she was a noble woman. She was a very practical person, uh, deeply pious and all, but she was, still had this uh, eye for running things. She was, <laughs> she was a leader. She was a mover and shaker. Uh, she, uh, you know, when she wrote to the Pope or the Bishop, or she was writing almost as an equal, you know, she, sure. <laughs> telling them, you got to get back, to, uh, you got to move from Avignon to Rome. Uh, a lot of these revelations are directly personal messages to different people, mm-hmm. uh, including the popes and various bishops, uh, and to the king, not least to the king, uh, the one of the best known historians of of uh, that particular period of the 14th century here in Sweden, he uh, speaks about King Magnus Eriksson, who was uh, the king she was most closely uh, connected to. And he says King Magnus had the misfortune of being born, of being a contemporary of of Bridget, oh. <laughs> <laughs> because she she could be pretty hard on him. I believe uh-huh. me, she <laughs> in some of the revelations. Um, so are you, are you if, if I can clarify on the revelations, you're saying that she received messages from uh, our Lord or from Our Lady that related to individual persons who were at her, in her time? Some of them, some of them. A lot of them are also, uh, they calls for, a lot of them calls for reform of the church, reforms in the country of Sweden, uh, reforms of different kinds per, in, per, in the personal lives of different people that she knew. Also, her own, uh, there were answers to her own questions. They're, they're quite, it's a very varied uh, body of revelations. Um, some of the revelations, by the way, include uh, the rule of the, religious, of the religious order that she founded. Okay. This is okay. a special revelation that re- she received, and she always described it as um, instantaneous, that she received, that she received the entire rule sort of infused instantaneously. Uh, this is how she described it. Mm. Um, these are not visions of the kind you might be thinking of Medjugorje or Fatima or, or Lourdes, where uh, she, uh, she receives a vision of the Virgin who speaks to her. And uh, they're, they're usually, they're, they're, they're a mixture. She did have a few visions like that. She, she certainly did. But a lot of her visions, they're hard, they're hard to distinguish from just um, the state of ecstasy. Uh, they're things that she saw in her interior, um, or they're intellectual visions. Sure. There's a, there, um, it, it, she covers the range of different kinds of re- re- uh, visions and revelations. I'm not a theologian, so I, sure. I can't describe these things in, in technical language. But um, if, you had, if you had to describe how she received them, it would be in a state of ecstasy, and she'd be infused with knowledge uh, regarding these different topics? Yes. A lot of, I would say a lot of them were also in the, in the nature of locutions. Mm-hmm. They might have been the Blessed Virgin telling her how she uh, uh, experienced the crucifixion, for example. Uh, they're, they're full of very tender devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary, uh, a real identification with her, and a, a very strong devotion to the humanity of Christ. It, there's the very palpable, tangible kinds of um, images that uh, St. Bridget offers us. Uh, there are very vivid descriptions of the birth of Christ, of of the crucifixion, of the sufferings of the Lord. Uh, she has an, a lot about purgatory. <laughs> it's, it, I have to admit, it's kind of tough getting through all the uh, visions of purgatory that she had. Um, but uh, a lot of times there are warnings to people. I'd say 
one of the themes that comes through or through the entire corpus of visions is the theme of the justice and mercy of God, that there are, that God's justice is never without mercy and that God's mercy is never without justice. Mm-hmm. That it's his nature to, uh, to be just, uh, perfectly just, uh, and also to be perfectly merciful. Sure. That and, two-sided coin that we always struggle with. Yes. Yes. And that, uh, a theme, constantly recurring theme is, uh, I was saying before, an appeal for reform, but also for personal reform, conversion. Uh, and that's why they're often re- directed to people that she knows, uh, usually anonymously. She'll refer to a certain queen or a certain king, you know. <laughs> She'll even refer to herself anonymously. Mm. Uh, some of them are directed towards her children, even. But uh, they are, there's always this appeal to uh, the conversion of the conversion of sinners, that even uh, even if you convert in the very la- your last breath, you know, and you say you're sorry or you turn to the Blessed Virgin, that uh, your your desire, your your intention will be counted as uh, as an act, uh, as a deed, and that will be sufficient for your that even up until our last breath of life, we have this uh, we have freedom to uh, to to um, confess our sins, to repent. Yeah, that's one of the constant, you know, themes of uh, of the revelations. There also, there's also a lot of social engagement, uh, and there's a real commitment to the salvation of all souls, salvation of the world. Something that kind of takes you uh, back as a modern reader. I mean, there are a lot of things that do. Uh, there's because this is this is 14th century we're talking. Right. We're still in a an, it's late medieval. Uh, and uh, the Latin isn't that good, by the way. <laughs> and uh, there's still knights. And uh, one thing that does take you back is uh, her uh, call for a crusade. Uh, she, 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 she wanted to see the king convert the, uh, the infidels by force. Mm. Uh, this is something that keeps on coming up. Uh, and uh, she, she wanted him, he, he was already campaigning in the Baltic countries. The Baltic countries, by the way, were among the last countries to be Christianized in mm-hmm. in uh, in in Europe. So let's say we're talking Lithuania and those countries. Sure, they, they became Christian quite late, uh, and so uh, she. It's it's kind of um, shocking to the my, modern mentality to uh, to have <laughs> the Blessed Virgin, you know, <laughs> encouraging the king. <laughs> <laughs> right to take, Go to take war. the crusades, right? Win souls. <laughs> right. That's, that's kind of hard to swallow. Sure, um, but uh, there's uh, there's so much in these uh, in these uh, visions. Actually, uh, you know, there's a lot of things that are difficult to swallow. As I said, tough to take, but they're very charismatic. They're full of wonderful images. Um, uh, very often, very practical images of daily life. Uh, she'll have. You know, she'll compare God to a washerwoman. No, she she's very interested in washing clothes and uh, and giving birth. Yeah, and it's, she's it's a very female perspective on things. It's, uh, and she, she knows what it's like to have a child uh, in her in her womb, mm-hmm. and that's uh, she feels this great identity. This this comes back often when she's talking to the Blessed Virgin. Uh, it's sort of like getting a a peephole into a person's interior life. Absolutely. She really does. Uh, it's, she's full of piety and, and passion. Uh, and, it's, and a lot of imagination. 
Sometimes it causes you. Sometimes it's pretty funny. To tell you the truth. Sure. And it sounds it sounds like she covers the full gamut of the human experience from washing clothes to waging war. Uh, what in your own personal feeling when you did the translation? Which of her revelations? most resonated with you or what did you find most interesting of all these various types of things that she speaks on? Um, well, there, that's, uh, you know, I've been doing this for quite a number of years and this is sort of in my, this is not the main thing that I do, uh, Michael. I'm uh, really, I, I'm mostly in ancient Greek <laughs> and medieval Greek. Okay. Uh, so this is something I do on the side and I've been doing it over a number of years. I'm just, I'm not defending myself here. I'm just pointing this out. Uh, that I don't always remember all the revelations. Sometimes I'm sure. very and there's, many, and there's many of them to remember. Sure. You know, it's over 700. Uh, but I'll, I'll tell you of a few. Uh, you know, one thing uh, I remember doing, she has a whole book of revelations that are directed to how bishops should live their lives, right? And I happen to be translating that during the year that all those, uh, all the scandals uh, broke out that particular year. Uh in, in the United States, uh, with all the problems in the press, the mass media of, uh, you know, sexual abuse, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, th that was one thing that was striking me at the time that I was saying to myself, well, this, the revelations that she has to the bishops are pretty relevant all of a sudden <laughs> uh, about how uh, bishops should be following up on the people under them. Uh, and the, uh, uh, this is not, uh, a, a, this is just a general comment, okay? On that book, there are other things. Uh, they, she uh, is very concerned about the uh, the abuse of power, not only in the church but by the king. As I, as I said, you know, the the king needed. Uh, he was constantly increasing taxes. <laughs> I, you know, you get a kick out of that. She, we have a number of revelations against high taxes, high <laughs> taxation, uh, and uh, as I say, she runs the gamut. But there are an awful lot of revelations about. Like where she sees souls in the next life being judged. And some of them are pretty hair-raising, I, <laughs> I must admit. Uh, one is where she actually sees her own son, her favorite son, Carl. Uh, and that's a, it was a very touching uh, revelation. Because Carl, uh, he was a, lived a you know, rough and ready life as a knight. Uh, and uh, he was uh, apparently a good-looking man and... Uh, it seems that Brigitte herself was a very good-looking woman, by the way. Uh, and uh, he, uh, yeah, he, he had his sins behind him, and he died uh, quite, quite young, relatively young. And uh, she had a vision of the, uh, his, his soul being judged before God. And uh, this is a very typical sin. This is one of the most typical kinds of visions that she had of a dialogue between the good angel and the, the demon that's, a car that's trying to tempt you. Mm -hmm. Or very often it's the Blessed Virgin who's defending the soul. And in this case, it was both the guardian angel and the Blessed Virgin. And the devil was there accusing her son, saying, I have, had, I have a whole sack of his sins. I've written everything down, every single little sin that he has ever done. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the Blessed Virgin and the, uh, his guardian angel tells him, well, open the sack and show him. And the, the devil opens the sack and lets out a, an incredible howl and says, it's all empty now. But wait, I have written them all on my tongue. I've got, and he rolls out his long, ugly tongue because the devil has a very long tongue. You know? And he howls again because they've all disappeared. And he says, no, I remember them all. And then he realizes that his memory has been taken from him. And why was this? Because 
Carl of uh, the soul, uh, this, this, this man was the son of Brigitte, um, had called upon the Blessed Virgin, uh, had a tender, vir- uh, you know, despite all his sins, was devoted to the Blessed Virgin. Yeah. And that's what saved him in the end. And it's, uh, there's quite a few visions like that, but they're, they're fun to read. Because, <laughs> oh, yeah, you, you paint quite a picture there. That's, uh, that's a very interesting tale of uh, the intercession. Yes. The Blessed Virgin is listening to all the accusations. She sort of, you know, descends down, <laughs> and she's, she's got a, something big under her mantle. Uh, and she doesn't. She's just got a big smile on her face while the devil is accusing this other soul of all the sins. And uh, and the judge, who's God, says, "What do you have there?" <laughs> and she opens up her mantle and shows a little church. <laughs> and you can see that there are a bunch of people inside the church who are praying for that soul. Uh, and uh, that's her secret weapon. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> the uh, the prayers for the dead. Um, is uh, there are a lot of funny things like that. But there's also um, a lot of uh, wonderful descriptions where you actually can sort of getting getting into the crucifixion, uh, the sufferings of our Lord, um, where she sees. You re- have you seen uh, Mel Gibson's film The Passion? Oh, of course, yes. Passion. I, I have to admit, it's, I, I, I'm not a great fan of biblical movies. <laughs> I prefer to let my own imagination tell me. Sure. Uh, but. Uh, there's a scene where uh, Mary uh, wipes up the blood after the scourging at right. the pillar. Mm-hmm. That reminded me very much, and I wouldn't be surprised if uh, Gibson had gotten it from Bridget, where uh, I, I know that he had another source, of course, but uh, yes. there's, uh, it's, it's something very striking, at least in different visions, where Mary s- sees uh, her son's bloody footprints you know, after the scourging. And um, there's a lot of these very striking details that you can read in the vision. It helps your own uh, life of of prayer. Um, And, of course, the constant call to conversion, the constant uh, um, uh, reminder that God is is full of mercy and is always ready to uh, accept our repentance. Now that's incredibly important, and I think that's uh, that's beautiful. That's related. His mercy is related through these visions. Now, now, Dennis, um, you've written. There's been four volumes of uh, of her revelations, correct? And the fourth is just on its way out uh, to the, that's to right. the publisher. Is that, is that correct? We just submitted just the other day uh, to Oxford University Press, which. Uh, not only charges obscene prices for its volumes, but it, <laughs> it also takes uh, a whole year. But we expect our fourth volume to be out by, uh, by July next year, 2015. They promised it would definitely be out by then. Uh, and uh, it'll be in time for the 600th anniversary of Sion Abbey uh, in, in England, where, where we hope to have a conference about St. Bridget uh, on the, yeah, in connection with the anniversary. St. Bridget is still quite a, a, she's quite alive here, even if, I mean, here in Sweden, even if Sweden is basically both a mostly Lutheran country, but a highly, not Lutheran in the uh, American sense, uh-huh. uh, in the very secularized Swedish sense, <laughs> uh, I, American Lutherans are actually much more religious than uh, Swedish Lutherans. I see. And um, they are, it's a very secularized country, but Bridget, her influence is still alive. Bridget or Brigitta. I, 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 I uh, pendulate between the two forms of her name, um, and it's 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 great to see that you know that there's there's the the idea that we've had this great saint in our country 
And she was also, uh, she was named a patron saint of Europe. She was one of the four patron saints of Europe, named by John Paul II. Yes. St. John Paul II. Uh, and uh, uh, this this reinforces the memory uh, here in Sweden of, uh, you know, once we were Catholic too. And there's, uh, it's it's a great thing to see. And the British Herons have come back to this country during the 20th century. You know, there's, uh, there's, there's always hope. You know, you might think, Sweden is, you know, at the, the upper limit of uh, secularization at the moment in Europe, but it's not quite true. We we see a lot of fruits here within the church, uh, conversions. I'm not talking mass conversions, but important conversions, and uh, and the Bridgetines are part of that. Uh, I, you know, I'm. It's not my. It doesn't have to be my spirituality, <laughs> the Bridgetine spirituality, uh, but it's, uh, you know, it's. It's a very important part of the of the modern Catholic scene. Well, good. Well, thank you, Dennis. That's uh, an exciting uh, report on Sweden and uh, the growth in the faith. And uh, for listeners who are interested in obtaining your book and who have a devotion to St. Bridget, where can they get uh, your book, The Re- Revelations of uh, St. Bridget of Sweden? I would recommend the local library. <laughs> but uh, you can, uh, because it's very... Uh, it really is quite expensive. Uh, these uh, academic uh, presses—it's you, you get an Oxford University press. Obviously, on Amazon you can get it. Uh, they're charging. I, I checked it out today before I went online uh, with you. Uh, it's they're quite expensive. So uh, I encourage, yeah, sure, Oxford University Press. You can get them more cheaply. I noticed a couple of Amazon for sixteen dollars. You know, but the uh, the main volumes are. They have an incredible price tag. So just wait. I'm, I'm going to talk to OUP and make sure we get a more, uh, we get a, a set worth of four volumes in one in, a, in a, sort of a, a paperback edition. That's what I, I really hope for. The, the original idea, Mike, was to publish this in Latin and English oh, at I see. the same time. And they, the Latin disappeared in the end, unfortunately. Because in the beginning, I was translating with the idea that there was, would be Latin on the next page. Oh, back-to-back pages. I see. Yeah. Well, but wonderful, I, Dennis. Thank you so much for joining us today and uh, giving us insight into the life of St. Birgitta of Sweden. And uh, we appreciate your work, your hard work on the book. And hopefully some listeners out there will be interested in buying it. So thanks so much for being with us today, and God bless you. Thank you very much, Michael. That was Dennis Serby, a professor at Stockholm University. We'd like to thank him for joining us on today's show. And again, he's the author of The Revelations of St. Birgitta of Sweden, uh, and that can be obtained going through eBay or Oxford University Press. Uh, our, our next program, we'll be talking about Ignatian spirituality with Dr. Phyllis Zagano. She's a senior research associate in residence, a department of religion at Hofstra University, and author of the book, The Ignatian Tradition. So be sure to visit MiracleHunter.com as your resource on miracles and keep up to date with how Our Lady is honored around the world at 365dayswithmary.com. Thank you for joining me today on Miracle Hunter, where it doesn't matter if you are a believer or a skeptic, it's always worth the hunt. You're tuned to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. The program you just heard was a rebroadcast of Miracle Hunter with Michael O'Neill.